Today we'll be continuing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, so if you would open there with me. Today we'll be specifically looking at verse number 15, but we'll read that section again to remind us of the context before we begin. So starting at verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for in this you will of God for this is in the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this verse in this passage, we know, Lord, that it is a difficult thing for us And we ask, Lord, for you to open our hearts to carefully receive and consider these things, that we might grow in our faith and in our knowledge and our care of you. So verse 15 in its conduct, its context really starts at verse 14. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now I mentioned when I preached on that that many people take it as how to deal with troublesome people. And I think it's really more about how to deal with our heart when dealing with people. It's about us, not about them. God's word is always something that should strike to our heart first. As we continue in verse 15, it's really the same idea, though, especially when dealing with troublesome people or being a troublesome person ourselves. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. That's a tough thing. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, this is just a really hard precept in our life. When we're treated unjustly, what do we want to do? We want to punish them. We want to revenge ourselves. We want to fix the problem. We have sometimes it's a desire for holy justice. We want what is right to be done quickly. And that's a good thing. And he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. Now, we sometimes skip the rest of it, but doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly all go hand in hand with our passage today. Other times, though, we have that unholy desire for revenge. They have hurt me and I want to hurt them back. Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Not for justice, but for revenge. 
verse 15 here is really the one of the most basic Christian virtues. Remember, this letter was written to a fledgling church that Paul wasn't even able to finish teaching the basics to. And this is one of those basics that every Christian should understand and know. Some commentators have suggested that this attitude of not repaying evil for evil, but repaying evil with good, is one of the things that helped the church to grow in the early centuries. Because they were humble, seeing the miracles of God and the might of God and the promises of God, and they were able to do this, and that made them so different than the world around them. Anyway, before we look at the meaning, because it's just one short verse and we've all heard this many times, I want to look at a few examples, a few stories of Scripture. Remember, Paul says that those things happened to them in the past for our benefit, for our knowledge, for our instruction. And so I wanted to consider a couple of stories that help us to see this. The first one was Moses. Remember Moses, he tried to help the people, but he got in trouble. He fled. He was staying in Midian, married uh, there and had two, two sons. And one day he comes to Mount Hor while he's taking care of the flocks. And the angel of the Lord appears to him in a fiery, in a flaming bush that doesn't consume the bush. And he thinks this is a great thing. And the Lord said to him there, surely I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up to a land that is good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he sends Moses, cry to the people of Israel. For behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppressions with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So we, we, we see the people of Israel are suffering under oppression and abuse and slavery. And God is going to send Moses to deliver them, to bring them up out of slavery, into the promised land with his milk, land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, they're told elsewhere they will receive homes and towns that they did not build, vineyards that they did not plant, fields that they did not prepare. Remember in that day, you, know, you plowed a field, you had to take all the rocks out and put them on the side so that the field was usable. It's sort of like this area. Uh, it's a lot of work, but it was already done for them. What could be better? And Moses is the man who's going to take them there. They should be happy and they should love Moses and respect him. But what happened? The first time he goes to Pharaoh. Well, before that, Moses doesn't even want to go, right? He's <laughs> Numbers 12.3 says, The man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. The meekest, gentlest man he doesn't want to be confronting and getting into a fight with Pharaoh and trying to force the people of Israel to follow his leadership. And he fought against doing this until God actually got angry. But in the end, he went to deliver them. This was a great thing for the people of Israel. But what happens? Well, Pharaoh says they're lazy and once their tasks increased and they won't get any more straw, they can go cut it themselves and make the same number of bricks. They punish the people. And so they meet Moses angrily and say, look what you have done. The Lord judge between you and us, because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They haven't even gotten started yet. 
and they're already complaining and grumbling against Moses. After he finally gets released, Moses leads the people away, and the Egyptian arm, Pharaoh changes his mind, goes back on his promise, again for the 11th time in the story, and chased after the people. When the army drew near, near the people lifted up their eyes, Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried to the Lord, and they said, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have we done to you? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? So they continued to hate leaving Egypt. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. They didn't want freedom. They didn't want a land of milk and honey. They didn't want vineyards that had been planted and fields that had already been dug. They wanted to be slaves in Egypt because it would be better for them. Well, Moses parts the sea and they all walk through and the Egyptians are killed in the flood when it comes back. They were happy for a little while. But then they come to Marah and the water can't be drinking, drunk because it's bitter. And so the people grumbled against Moses complaining, what well, shall we drink? They fix the pro- Moses fixes the problem after God tells him what to do. Then the whole people of Israel grumble again against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. said, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, where we had meat pots and ate bread to the full. You have brought us into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly. Now, how ungrateful could they be? They'd rather be God's enemies and die at his hands and trust in him. And, of course, they're grumbling against Moses. This is all your fault, Moses. You represent God. Terrible situation. Moses is going to be pretty miserable. The whole time he's with the people, they quarrel and grumble. All the congregation of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So the people quarreled with Moses, saying, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? They had already seen the Lord deliver them many times, but the people thirsted for water. And why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So now Moses' real purpose is to murder everybody, not to save them. Moses is working his best. He didn't want to do it, but God wanted him to save this people. And he's off saving this people. And all they do is grumble against him and accuse him of wanting to murder them and their children. You know, what a tough time this must have been for Moses. He reaches his limit in Exodus chapter 20. Said Now there was no water for the congregation, continuing on with uh, the, the quarrel that was just happening. And they assembled together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. So others have already died for the sin of grumbling against God. And they say, If only we had died then. If only we had died at the hand of God from the Egyptians. If only we had died when others quarreled. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? You have made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place. It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. 
So Moses and Aaron fall down before the Lord, and the Lord speaks to Moses. This is important. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water out of this rock? Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And that's the beginning of Numbers 20. Now, we know the story, and we know it's a bit long. But what happened? People were harassing Moses from day one. He's doing his best to help them. He's doing everything that God has told him to do to help them. They have seen God help help them over and over again through Moses, and yet they continue to grumble against Moses They're the most difficult, stiff-necked, obnoxious people you would ever want to be the leader of. In fact, nobody would ever want to be the leader of those people. What happened to Moses, though? He allowed this worthless rabble within God's people. And that's important. They're within God's people. This is God's nation, chosen nation. He allowed them to provoke him. They kept doing evil upon evil upon evil. And at the beginning, he repaid their evil with good every time. But now he's angry. He becomes bitter. And what happens? Instead of obeying God and speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock in anger, not once but twice. Was his anger justified? Well, from my perspective as a person, oh yeah. If I had to put up with those people, I'd probably have done far worse. I'd strike them with the staff. Uh, From a human perspective... Their treatment of him was unforgivable and unpardonable. And he he was angry, and we think, well, he was justified to be angry. But two things to note. What did he get for his anger? And who did he actually lash out against? For his anger, he was not going to be allowed to even enter the promised land. He would see it only from a distance. He wouldn't be able to lead the people there. And who did he lash out at against the foolish people? Well, he called them rebels. I don't think they minded. Uh, He lashed out at God. That's often what our anger does. When we repay evil with evil, the evil we do is evil against God. And we need to remember that and think about that. He took out his frustrations on the glory of God and not directly on his tormentors. And he paid a great price. So as we consider this verse a bit later, I want you to think about Moses and what he did. A second example, which would be more positive, would be David. David and Saul. We read part of that story today. Remember, Saul had failed his test from God. He had decided not to obey God and do what he thought was right in his own eyes, and God had rejected him as king. 
But David continues on, or Saul continues on as king. But David is anointed by the prophet to be king. And David came to Saul and entered into his service. And we're told in 1 Samuel 16, 21, that Saul loved him greatly. And David became his armor bearer. He kills Goliath, in a great, resulting in a great victory over the Philistines by the people of Israel. They had been cowering in fear. There's this giant, he's too strong. We can't fight. We're nothing in their eyes. We're grasshoppers. And nobody would fight. But when David, a young man, went out there with a sling and killed this giant, the people took courage and a great battle ensued and they slaughtered the Philistines. And what was a great slaughter, a wonderful victory for King Saul and for all of his forces. Unfortunately, we know what happens next, right? David, the beloved son to Saul, who cared for, his, cared for him and bore his own armor, he loved him greatly. But then Saul hears, oh, and a great warrior who led this great battle to great victory. But as they were coming home, this is in uh, 1 Samuel 18. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out from all of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and musical instruments. So they're singing great joyful songs. They're very happy and they've come to meet the king. But the woman sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. You know, an honest representation of what happened. The king did much, but David, in, as one of his unofficial leaders at that time, had done the greatest part of the battle. The king usually doesn't strike anybody down. But they're attributing him to thousands. But Saul is very angry about the saying. It displeased him a lot. They ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What can, more can he have but the kingdom? So the people are thinking he did a greater deed than Saul. Therefore, he's a threat to me being king. Saul's eye, Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day, a harmful spirit rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did, as he did day by day, and Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had been departed from Saul. So Saul made it, removed him from his presence and made him commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went in and came out among them. So David was doing a great job for Saul, did great work for Saul, was being fully obedient and submissive to Saul, and Saul was trying to kill him because of jealousy. And what more evil can you have in your life than to try and do a good job and have your superior want to kill you or destroy you because they're jealous or fearful of your success? Especially Saul even knew that David's success came from the Lord and the spirit of the Lord had been taken from him and had been given to David. And an evil spirit 
had come upon Saul. What happens next is Saul tries to conspire how to trap David. I'll give him my daughter, Merab. But David says, no, 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 I'm, who am I that I should become the king's son-in-law? And refuses. But then Saul heard that David's daughter, Michael, loved David. And so they told Saul, and this thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give him to her so that she may be a snare, and the hand of the Philippines may be against them. And therefore Saul said to David a second time, now become my son-in-law. And he set the bride price to be a bunch of Philistine lives, which David went out and killed. And he thought that would make the Philistines want to hunt David down and kill him, and I'll be rid of him, you know, conspiring against David. But it didn't work, and things get worse and worse. And in chapter 19, which we read, Saul has messengers watching his house so that he, they can kill him. And Micah, Saul's daughter, warns David and sends him away. In the next chapter, Saul, try, same, or yeah, Saul is trying to kill David, and David is in hiding, and Jonathan, say, David's best friend, promises to feel out his father and find out what's going on and whether his life is really in danger. And when he does so and he speaks for David, Saul becomes angry with Jonathan and says to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, blaming his wife. <laughs> you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he will surely die. So he's worried that God has given the kingdom to David and he wants to kill him. And his son, Saul says, you won't be able to be king as long as David lives. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Right? He was most trusted man in all of Israel, servant of the king, armor bearer of the king, leader of a thousand for the king, who has many great victories for the king. He has served you faithfully and never once done anything against you. But what is Saul's response? He holds a spear at his own son to kill him. And then David, Jonathan knew that David was going to be killed, and so he, he told David, and David fled. He ends up living in a cave. He ends up having many horrible, miserable things happen to him. One of the things that happened is David stopped to see the priest Ahimelech in Nob. And Saul learned about that. He went to call Ahimelech. Now, David comes to Ahimelech as you know, one of the generals of Saul, loyal and trusted man, the armor bearer of Saul, faithful and just and good and powerful in all of his war for the Lord. What do you think he does? He welcomes him and gives him whatever he asks. Saul's response is, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of the Lord for him? So he's angry with the priest for inquiring of the Lord. Why have you given him all that so that he 
has risen against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Now, that was his fantasy. David never laid in wait for him. And Ahimelech answered the king, And who among your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law, the captain of his bodyguard, and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing about all this, much or little. The king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king orders the guard who stood with him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Because their hand is also with David. Now, in a sense, that's right. David, they are, their hand is with David since they serve God, and God has given his blessing to David. And he knew that. But he said, they knew that he fled. They did not know. And they did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand and strike the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, the Edomite, not a Jew, not part of God's kingdom, turn and strike the priests. Now, and they killed that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod and Nob, so 85 priests. The city of the priests, Nob, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep. He put them to the sword. First Samuel 22. So not only a solid enemy of David, but an enemy of God, whose hatred for what God has done causes him to slaughter an entire city, not just the priests, but their wives and their children and their animals to work out his bitter frustration against God. He is, David is then hunted endlessly, suffers much. He lost his wife, his position, all of his comforts, his place in society. He's now an outcast living with outlaws. He laments his mistreatment many times in the Psalms. One of them is Psalm 35. I want to read a few verses. Verse 24 to 28. He says, Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. Let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, hearts, Aha! Our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say, Great is the Lord who delights in the, wel- delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and, and of your praise all the day long. So while he laments his treatment, calls on God to do something about it and to deal with his tormentors, David's attitude toward Saul never changed. He continued to repay Saul's evil with good. He continued to work for the kingdom. He continued really to support Saul. Remember the incident where David is hiding from Saul while Saul's chasing him and he hides in a cave. And Saul comes in to relieve himself alone. His men urge him to kill Saul, saying, The Lord has delivered Saul into his hands. But David steadfastly refuses. And after Saul leaves, what does he do? 
He calls out to Saul. He had cut off a corner of his robe so that he would know how close David was to him. If you can cut the corner of the robe without being detected, you could certainly thrust a sword through his back or spear. Saul would be dead. But David calls out from a hilltop to Saul from the cave. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, meaning Saul, for he is the Lord Yahweh's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is nothing wrong and no treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked, wickedness comes. But my hand shall not be against you. First Samuel 24, 9 through 13. In spite of all the evil and suffering Saul had inflicted on David, David was not willing to kill him. He left it to the Lord. The Lord will avenge me. The Lord will take care of it. He called upon the Lord to deal with things. And eventually the Lord does and Saul dies. Great victory celebration for David, right? Dancing in the streets. The wicked witch is dead. No, that's not what happened. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, 24 and 25, we read what David says. David says, You daughters of Israel, weep. Weep over Saul, who clothed you in luxurious scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. He did not envy Saul's power. He did not rejoice over his enemy's demise. He did not insult Saul while living or dead. He did not mock or ridicule him. No matter what Saul did to him, he treated Saul with honor and respect. Scripture warns us, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, and he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Proverbs 17.5. In David's lament in Psalm 35, he says, he calls on the God to bring justice to those who mock at his calamity. David is not a hypocrite. He does not mock at the calamity that came upon the house of Saul by God's will. He did what he was supposed to do. He was a gracious man who left it all in God's hands. We are told by Jesus, do not take revenge, leave it to the Lord. And that's exactly what he did. We're told in our passage today to do good, not evil. Do not repay evil for evil, but do good to everyone. And that is what David was doing. In spite of all that he suffered, and he suffered far more than any of us have ever suffered at the hands of our adversaries, any more than we've ever suffered from family members or children or the government or anything else. So there's a positive example. The third example I want us to consider is Jesus. 
We know his story well. It's told in all four of the Gospels. He is God of very God, eternal God. Nothing that was made was not made without him making it. He's been around forever in heaven, worshipped and glorified as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He has his throne in heaven, his place in heaven, 10,000 times 10,000 angels at his disposal who worship him day and night. And yet, he set that aside. Now, we should remember, that was what he deserved. That is his due. Moses certainly deserved respect for the work that God had called him to do. David deserved respect for his honorable behavior and his hard work for the kingdom and the country and for God. But Jesus, infinitely more so. He belonged in heaven, and he had no fault. David certainly had his faults. Moses had his faults. Jesus had none. He was perfect, sinless, we are told, over and over again. In fact, when he is being accused or resisted and mocked by the unbelieving Jews, he says to them, which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? If any of us were to say, which of you convicts me of sin? Our spouse would probably be first, our children second, and everybody else third. But we'd all have something we could say. Certainly, you know, I do. People could say about me. But Jesus was able to go to his enemies and say, which of you convicts me of sin? There was no sin in him, no reason to be angry with him, no fault with him. We often rationalize and justify our anger at others because they have faults. Well, Jesus said none. The people owed him. And he came not to do his own will, but the will of his father to save the souls of his people. No man can deliver his own soul from death because the price is infinite. We read that in Psalm 49 before. No man can rescue another. No man can save himself. The debt is too huge. Yet for Jesus, because he is God, he was able to pay the, the debt in full and save his people. What a great thing they, owe, they owed him. What a great thing we owe him. And yet we read that his own received him not. What did they do? They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They plotted against him. They tried to murder him repeatedly. Eventually they succeed. Yet we know what it was supposed to happen from the Old Testament. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 3 through 8, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. All of that was for an example for us of how we should be when it comes to dealing with difficult people. What our heart should really be like. Peter explains it in 1 Peter 2, 21-24, which we looked at, I think, last year. For we have been called, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled, and he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So how did he deal with evil being given to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What did he do in response to the persecution? He saved Saul's soul. Paul's soul. This is really a hard precept to live in our lives. That's why I wanted to go through a few examples for us to think about as we look at the verse. See to it, no one repays anyone evil for evil. The first half of the verse is a commandment in the negative form. The second half of the verse is in the positive form. We know the book of Proverbs, we've read it well. We know the danger of getting angry. We know the danger of what happened to Moses happens to us often regularly. We reply to what we perceive as evil just the way the Jews replied to Jesus. They saw being confronted for their sin, being called to holiness, being shown what a holy life looks like to be a great evil to them, and they replied with evil. When in truth... Jesus was giving them good. Moses was giving them good. David was doing good to Saul. But they all took it as evil. And they replied to those three as evil, with evil. But we are called not to do that. We pay no one evil for evil. We know the Proverbs, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 14.29 A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. 15.18 Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit, the one who takes his city. Proverbs (coughs) 16.23 This passage here in 1 Thessalonians 5 is telling us we need to rule our spirit. It is not about them. It is about us. It is about our heart. It is about how we respond to our life, be it real or imagined sins against us. How do we respond to each other? How do we respond to the world? He who rules his spirit is better than he who takes the city. Proverbs 16.32 Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 Many people cannot overlook even the slightest of offenses, but it is to our glory to do so. 
We don't need to be angry. We don't need to seek revenge. We don't need to repay evil for evil. Many times we can just overlook. Yes, that person is not mature enough in the faith. They may be more or less mature than I am, but they're annoying me at the moment. But that is not an excuse. That is not a justification. If it was, Jesus certainly would have had no mercy for us. David certainly would have had no mercy for Saul. It's all about our heart. Proverb that speaks well to David's response to Saul's death is Proverbs 24:17 through 20. He says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Don't repay evil for evil, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and don't be envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. David knew and trusted that God would take care of it. Of course, taking care of it may be bringing them to repentance and a change of heart. We know the command of the Lord. He says, Proverbs 24:29. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay back the man for what he has done. Don't be like that. That's very similar to the American inner city motto I heard many years ago. The rule is do it to them before they can do it to you. The Bible says don't do to them what they've done to you, let alone what you imagine they might do to you. But we say, oh, the evil people deserve to be punished. Yes, God will judge. But I ask, how are they different than you? How are they different than me? Have I not treated people with evil intent before? Do I not cause people grief and trouble? Treat others the way you would want to be treated yourself. Don't I deserve to be punished for the evil I have done? Don't each of you. That's the point I think God is making when he says that the Lord sees and is displeased by revenge. We deserve it too. And remember, of course, the evil man might become the brother, as Saul did. Saul was persecuting not just the Lord, but all of his people. He was trying to destroy the early church. He was killing people. He was a murderer, making martyrs of God's people. And yet what happens? God says to him, why do you persecute me? And then he saves his soul and makes him a servant of God. And of the kingdom. Paul warns us about this very idea of taking revenge on those who bother us. We find that in Romans chapter 12, verse 14 to 21. He calls us to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And here's the connection. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That was our previous verse, right? Peace with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a longer version of our verse today. The more a man can overcome evil with good for holy reasons, for right reasons before God, for concern for the person's soul, the greater the holiness of such a person really is. To return reproach for reproach, reviling for reviling, cursing for cursing, scorning for scorning, defaming for defaming is exceedingly natural to us. To love those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, to do good to them who abhor us, to pray for them that persecute us and use us spitefully, according to Christ's express command in Matthew 5.44, that is contrary to our nature. But that is true to our new nature. The more we are the new man in Christ, the more we have been transformed into the image of Christ, the less cursing for cursing and evil for evil, and the more repaying evil with good becomes normal. Jesus' command in that passage, I'll I'll read verse 43 and 44 of Matthew, or 43 through 46. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was a proverb of the Jews of his day, not in scripture so much. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors were the lowest form of life in Israel's eyes in those days as they collected taxes from the Jews for a foreign enemy who had conquered them. If our Lord and Savior has both commanded it and lived it out in his life, exemplified it in his life, shouldn't we work very hard to do it ourselves, to not take revenge, to not punish those who offend us and hurt us or make us unhappy? There are a number of reasons for this commandment given not to repay evil with evil, but with good. In human wisdom, it's hard to see. We want justice. We want revenge. We want relief. If David had killed Saul in the cave. David could have gone on to become king then and not have had to live sorrow for more time. Right? We think that is good. But this is a matter where really submission to God comes in. We've been told what God wants, what will please God, and we should please him. It's a place where we can exercise our faith. Lord, I really want to destroy this person for what they've done to me, but I know that your word teaches me to repay his evil with good, and so I will do so. And each time we do that, it gets a little easier to overcome anger. It gets a little easier to overcome wrath because we're building our faith more and more, our trust, our confidence, 
The day will come where if that is an unrepentant sinner, they will be called to account for what they have done. God says, leave it to me. I will repay. It is mine to revenge, God says, not ours. Remember, this epistle is about living and preparing for the day of the Lord. And on that day, he will judge the living and the dead. He will repay. But also remember that Jesus has paid it all for his people. When we despise Jesus' mercy on them by taking revenge ourselves. If he has said, I will forgo my revenge, I will forgo my justice, because it's paid on the cross, how can we say, Jesus' blood isn't good enough? I need revenge. That's really what we're saying. We've already read that he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Why not send wrath on them now? Right? We remember what the martyrs said in Revelation 6.10. They cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? We want that revenge. It seems long to us. But the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that you should reach repentance. Second Peter 3.9 Put off our vengeance, because the Lord has fixed a day on which he will judge. Instead of vengeance, we should focus our efforts on doing good to others. And that's the second half of the verse. We need to do good to those who do evil to us. Repay good. They repay good, our good with evil. We need to repay their evil with more good. Proverbs 25, 21 and 22 says, If your hungry enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals upon his head, and the Lord will reward you. We read that same thing in Romans 12, and in Matthew 5 today. And we need to understand it in its context. The purpose is not heaping burning coals on their head to burn them and make them miserable and make them have a more horrible place in hell. See, I repaid your evil with good, and you therefore get a stricter judgment because your sin is aggravated. That's not his meaning at all. Remember what we read in Romans 12. We read that the purpose is really for them to be brought to repentance, for them to make amends. It's, that's why we're called upon to bless those who persecute you and do evil to you. Overcome evil with good. The meaning is to show them the way they should be treating people so they can understand the error of their ways, to bring their conscience to bear on them, to prick their conscience, as it were, for all the hurt they've done to you, you still treat them well. They know that's how they should be treating you. This can work to bring them to repentance. For some, it just makes them more evil and more hateful. Right? But to the godly person, it will prick their conscience. Fill them with shame for the things they have done. And to bring about the best possible outcome, the repentance, to the salvation of their soul. I know someone will ask, well, doesn't that make me weak? Doesn't that make me inferior? Doesn't that make me despicable in their eyes? Aren't the really wicked ones just going to be twice as evil because I show grace? 
Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is an area where we count their salvation, their soul, more important than our discomfort. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but the interest of others. We need to have an interest in their salvation, in their repentance, in their life. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't hold on to his divine pleasures in heaven, but he emptied himself. He set it all aside, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And he humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. Are we better than Jesus? Do we deserve more than he deserved? Should we suffer less than he suffered? Can't we humble ourselves? Can't we do good to our own enemies? Can't we do good to those who annoy us endlessly? I think we can. For while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Romans 5.10. Jesus took care of us while we were enemies, and he tells us to not repay evil with evil, but to do good to them, especially the brothers, the Christians, because our sins have been paid for in the blood of Christ, but also to the world, that they might see the glory of God and be brought to repentance. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is a difficult thing for us to set aside our desire for justice, to set aside our desire for revenge, to take the little annoyances and aggravations that your people constantly give to us, that the world constantly gives to us, to not respond in kind with irritation to irritation, cursing to cursing, trouble to trouble, but to do good to them, to seek their good, their true good, not their pleasure in sin, but their repentance of sins and their comforts in this life. We ask, Lord, that you would humble our hearts as your Son humbled himself, that we might follow his good example and not repay evil for evil, which is our nature, but repay evil for good, do good to all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.